All right, everyone, let's call a timeout. Hi, Janelle. My name is Jason, and uh, thank you for coming onto the show today. For those for our listeners who haven't met you before, would you like to introduce yourself a little bit? So, Jason, thank you for inviting me. It's a great honour. I don't quite know how I got this gig, but very pleased. So, I'm Janelle Brennan. I'm um, head of urology at Bendigo Health, and also have a private practice. Um, I like to think of myself as a human plumber because that's what I do. Lots of plumbing. You're actually the first urologist that we've had on the show, so. Uh, potentially a different perspective to some of the other guests. We'd like to ask all of our guests a couple of warm-up questions just to sort of get the conversation going. Can you take us through your day so far? My day is very atypical today, and this probably will not make the podcast because it involved me getting up. I'm on holidays, so I got to sleep in, which was divine. Got to, you know, read in bed. Then I took my elderly mother to various appointments, which was less divine, but anyway, essential. And uh, I've come into work and uh, now I'm talking to you. So that's a very atypical day, but it's most enjoyable. What, uh, what are you reading at the moment? Is there anything that you'd recommend? I'm a very keen reader and I think that's what keeps me sane. Um, I think every doctor should get into reading. I'm reading a book called Radical Uncertainty, which is about... So I'm going to sound like a loser, but it's about probability and how probability and reasoning became part of sort of business culture. And it's about how the world has so much uncertainty, you can't use probability principles. It's quite heavy. (laughs) It's written very densely, not necessarily well, but it's actually good and does describe sort of basic probability pretty well. So... I think it's quite quite timely as well that title radical uncertainty are you someone who enjoys reading uh business books and non-fiction like is there a particular reason why you like to read those or is it just that you find it interesting i think you know in medicine you know sure we read our journal articles we often are in a bit of a silo and i think if you want to understand the world or innovate and i'm very keen on innovation it's good to read books outside of your discipline to see another way of looking at the world because we can, you know, particularly in medicine, we all have the same training, we do things a very similar way. So I read business books, I read psychology books, I read history, politics. I just think there's a lot to learn. You know, I read, you know, some fiction as well. Don't mind the odd murder mystery, but I think reading is the key to being able to innovate, to see different perspectives, how different ways have done things. I'm quite keen on the idea of innovation. So, And I know from reading online that you are a avid golfer and you're also into your food and wine but if there was one profession outside of surgery that you could do um, what would it be and and why there's a few if i could be a professional golfer that would be awesome but we all know that i'll never get to that stage and if i could be carolyn o'connor and sing and dance that would also be great but i can do neither so probably engineering i think engineering would be very interesting career actually i like the thought of you know building things and engineering would be good engineering yeah that's 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 different um some of the other guests have said they wanted to be uh one of them i think it was prof chung said that he would want to be a priest actually i do not want to be a priest (laughs) so we'll move on and talk a little bit about you Um, and we always like to start by getting to know janelle um as you were when you were when you were a child so can you tell us a little bit about uh you know where you grew up did you grow up in victoria or did you move from another state or overseas 
I have a very boring childhood, and boring is good. That's, that's what every child should have. So I was born in Ballarat because my mother had preeclampsia, but I grew up my entire life in a small country town called Ararat that used to be famous for, um, you know, being close to the Grampians and having beautiful views and then became famous for hosting The Biggest Loser. Now, why our city council thought that would be a good idea to become known as the town of the biggest loser, I do not know. But anyway, that's where I grew up. Uh, and I used to be skinny back then, but I've taken on the town motto, put on the weight. I went to school in Ararat for all of my 17 years, then went to Melbourne University. So for me, um, growing up in the country, my great dream was to become a doctor, which I didn't think would necessarily be possible. And the day I got accepted into Melbourne University was probably the happiest day of my life. And it's a decision that um, to pursue medicine that I do not regret. And I would strongly encourage anyone who wants a medical career to do it. Sure, you can earn money doing different things, but it's such a fascinating job. There's such breadth of things you can do. I don't regret to this day my decision. In terms of uh, growing up in the country, what sort of student were you like as, as, a, as a young girl? Like, were you a troublemaker or were you one of the, the girls sort of was just listen to what the teacher said or were you, where were you on that, on that sort of scale? I was never one of the popular kids, I don't think. I was a bit of a school dork. Um, I was always my own person. I wasn't very good at listening to teachers. I often had to do lines for talking too much and answering back. I think I've always been a bit of an independent thinker, never went with the crowd. And growing up in the country, that can be an issue because when you're in a class of, my year 12 class had 28 kids. Um, you know, there's only two subject streams. It can be hard if you don't fit in. Like I was never one of the netball girls. Um, so that made it a little tricky. I must admit, I always felt I missed out a bit at school compared to my colleagues who would go to other schools and have music lessons and all these sporting opportunities. Don't worry, I had a great time, but school was challenging for me in terms of I felt a bit isolated. I wasn't necessarily like all the other kids and that I wanted to go to university. Back in 1991, when I finished year 12, not everyone wanted to go to university. So. Maybe I was a bit of a fish out of water, but anyway, I was glad to, to leave and go to Melbourne, actually. Um, so at, at home, do you have any siblings, like brothers, sisters? No, no, just me. Um, I joked that in year 12, they got a dog. That was, I thought, to replace me. But the dog used to come every uh, day and pick me up after school because, of course, I used to catch the bus to school until later years. And because they were at so small, they just used to create the bus stops outside your house. <laughs> It's quite, quite good. And it would take, you know, 10 minutes to get to school and sometimes Dad would bring you lunch in the middle of the day and, you know, you know, one side of Ararat to the other could take you a good four minutes, Jason. You don't understand the traffic congestion that we experienced. <laughs> so, you know, it was a very um, simple life in a way. I played a lot of sport. Um, that's kind of what you did. You play sport and you studied. I think it would be really interesting to talk a little bit more about... Um how you felt once you moved to Melbourne because I'd imagine, you know, being 17 or, or 18 at the time and, and moving to Melbourne, that would have been a, probably a, 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 a quite a big change of pace compared to what you maybe were used to growing up. Look, my version of rice back then was served with milk and sugar and cooked in the oven as a dessert <laughs> and I'd never had pizza and I'd never had pasta. Um, you're going to say that's ridiculous, but we had a Chinese restaurant and my parents were both born in Ararat or the surround, so they'd never done any of that stuff. 
Um, so it was a bit of a culture shock. Uh, my first day at Melbourne University, um, you know, my class was all Caucasians for a start. Um, so I'd never been to school with anyone of Asian heritage. So uh, I think when I went to Melbourne University, um, you know, Caucasians were probably in the minority and, and that was a, a shock. You know, there was all these different people and people ate all these different foods and it was very exciting. It was wonderful, actually. But I'm very lucky because um, I went to college, St Mary's, and they were the three best years of my life. I didn't do any study. I was extremely naughty, not studying, but I had a fantastic time and met so many amazing people from different backgrounds and they've really become my friends for life, my college friends. I don't really see anyone from school, but... College was an extraordinary opportunity, not from an <laughs> academic sense, but from a, having a good time exploring the world. You know, it was amazing. It was so good. Yeah, it's a cheeky, cheeky little plug for St. Mary's College there, if there's anyone listening. <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's a fantastic place. And for all the boys out there, it's 60% girls, 40% boys. So, you know, it's not a, not a bad uh, option if you're a young man. <laughs> so, uh, no, great, great place to go to. I had a great time. Did you ever find that you were homesick and you and you and you missed home while you were at college? Well, if my mother and father are listening, well, fortunately, Dad won't because he's dead. Um, of course, no, absolutely not. I was having such a good time. I had no time to be homesick. I had a great time. It was. I can't begin to describe the opportunity for me. You're suddenly at Melbourne University. You walk through that quad every day. Sure, I was still wearing my, you know, desert boots and my college rugby top and my R.M. Williams boots. But it was just so much fun. It was just so exciting. Melbourne was an extraordinary place to study. You know, next to Ligon Street, all those exciting things happening. No, I was not homesick. I mean, Ligon Street would have been a little bit different back in those days as well compared to how it is now. I think it's calmed down a lot since since the, uh, the late 80s and the, the early 90s. In terms of... Um, you know, you said that your interest in medicine, you, you said that it was always your dream to become a doctor. Um, how did that actually start? My background is interesting because my parents left school early because they're a bit older. So dad left school at 14 and mum left school at uh, 15, the end of, I think it was the end of year nine because their father had died and they both went and got jobs. So I didn't come from a academic family. Um, I always thought I wanted to be a school teacher. Thank God I got that out of my mind. I would have been the worst teacher known to man. Um, but then in year nine, I had a hemithyroidectomy. I had a, a thyroid mass and they thought, oh, could this be malignant? And my surgeon, a guy called Roger Mitchell from Ballarat, who's um, retired now, was such a nice guy and treated me so well. I thought, you know what, I'd, I'd like to be a doctor. And back then I thought I wanted to be a country GP the uh, only problem was the more medicine I did, the more I realised that I actually hate medicine. I like surgery. I often joke that, you know, I didn't choose surgery. Surgery chose me. You know, I just liked it. And I was like, this is dumb. It's going to be a terrible lifestyle. What are you doing? But I just <laughs> like surgery. So, you know, I remember sitting in anatomy class going, I'll never need to learn any of this stuff. I'm never going to be a surgeon. Mm, whoops. So by the time you were kind of... Um, what in high school you were already think you know sort of in the later years of high school you were already thinking about medicine in year nine onwards I decided I wanted to do medicine 
And once I decide things, I'm pretty determined. I think most surgeons are like that. They're pretty determined. So I remember my preference list was, you know, <laughs> um, you used to have to put preferences in. You might not remember this, but it would go from one to eight based on your score. We used to have an Anderson score and now it's a TER or whatever it is. Um, and one was uh, medicine at Melbourne, two was medicine at Monash, and then every other course that was engineering, there was science, they were all at Melbourne purely so I could live in college. Girls from my school had been to St Mary's and I really admired them and they were funny and uh, they had a great time. And I decided I was going to St Mary's and the University of Melbourne to have fun. All right. so in terms of like... I guess working towards that goal, do you, were you somebody who, I mean, look, like, let's be honest, a lot of the people who are listening are probably like Taipei personalities. You know, we like to plan and think ahead. Were you already someone who was like thinking that far ahead, you know, even when you're in high school or were you sort of just letting things come? Like, Absolutely. God, do you know anyone who's a doctor that's not type A unless I wasn't as smart as those other kids, so I definitely had to plan. There were quite strict entrance requirements back then as well because, there was no postgraduate degrees, you've got to remember. So everyone had to get a high score in English. Everyone had to do the higher level of maths and you had to get a very good score in chemistry. And you had to have one other science subject. So there wasn't a lot of room to manoeuvre. So, yeah, in my year 12, I did the old-fashioned sort of maths A, maths B, maths 1, maths 2, physics, chemistry, biology, English and religious education because I went to a little country Catholic school, which was a waste of my time. But anyway, that needed to be done. So I did seven subjects in year 12. That might have been, I I think, uh, yeah, I I mean, it's interesting because I feel like it's been quite, like it's been quite varied what the guests have said. Some of them have said they're actually quite humanities oriented. You know, Prof Drummond said that she actually really enjoyed English and literature and and wanted to be a writer um, coming out of, coming out of high school. Um, So I think it's interesting that maybe, you know, you were sort of already thinking a little bit more ahead. The problem for us, you've got to remember being in the country, um, you know, English literature was only available by correspondence. Uh, I did French up until year 11, but I soon worked out that, you know, I'd never even heard of New Caledonia, let alone been there because I'd never been overseas. So that wasn't going to work for me. And um, those sort of subjects, you had teachers that weren't necessarily interested in, at least with maths or biology is kind of a right answer and a wrong answer and if you're from a a school that doesn't have necessarily a strong academic pedigree which would be my school realistically um, choosing those subjects was the way to make sure you could get a high mark I think most country kids that I know of focused on those core subjects where you're kind of either right or you're wrong there's not that difference so yeah and again I think that perspective is quite useful to think about because there's not a lot of students in our cohort who come from a rural background. Most of us are from, you know, Metro Melbourne. And so being able just to appreciate that difference potentially is, is something worth thinking about. You know, were there any particular challenges that you remember from your schooling days that, um, you know, that you really had to work hard to, to overcome? Yeah, I think um, in my cohort, there was only about 12 of us from rural Victoria. And I think 10 of the 12 and Amazingly, I wasn't one of them, had uh, got extra marks based on they were rural. I got in by about four points. <laughs> Close. Um, I think the score was 379 and I had 383 or 384 or something. The hardest thing for me is that I had very supportive parents that even though they hadn't been to university, could see that that's what I wanted to do. And, and mm. they were very much, if you want to be a checkout chick in our app, 
that's fine. I can tell you right now, growing up in Ararat, the last places I wanted to be was to live and get married and settle down in Ararat. Let me tell you, <laughs> a lot of incentive to work hard. But they used to have these summer school programs at the University of Melbourne. You'd come down for a week, say, and do maths, or you'd come down for a week and do science in the school holidays. And my dad used to bring me down, um, and often they were just on a weekend, and the hardest thing was being in there and realising every other kid was often so far ahead of me in terms of curriculum. Because if you've only got 28 people in Year 12 and 14 of those do history because they're not clever enough for maths and then the other 14 do Level 2 maths, like, you've got to teach to the class. And so they're not teaching for people to do well. And I think that's why rural kids do struggle. Do you think that um, because of that, like, like what, did you, what did you do to kind of fix that problem? Like, were you an independent learner or...? Independent learner. I also had a little bit of tutoring as well from a, a retired teacher to help me with some maths, um, just to get me to the next level, maybe an hour a fortnight or something. I went to the summer schools. I did all the past exam papers. I mean, I think that's one of the advantages of postgraduate medicine now is that it does level that playing field, that everyone's getting the same teaching at university. Mm. The huge disadvantage, however, is that someone like me who did very poorly in the first three years and somehow graduated with honours. So I must have done all right in the last three, very badly in the first three. I think one year I got 55. It was my highest score. And I was like, oh, that was good, five points extra. <laughs> too hard. I had an outrageously good time. I was the sports captain of college. I was the debating captain. I had an outrageously good time. And I could never have done that if I was having to try and get into postgraduate medicine. So, you know, there's pros and cons of both approaches. I think that feeling that you mentioned of, you know, sitting in the summer school and looking at the other kids who were there and feeling like they were so much further ahead of you, I think that's a feeling that a lot of medical students can resonate with, um, you know, especially, uh, you know, at, at Melbourne where there's a postgraduate course, you know, you're not coming out of high school where everyone's essentially the same. Um, there are people who've done other things. They've sort of studied other things um, and they have just different knowledge and different skill sets. And it can feel a bit intimidating being in that environment. I'm wondering, um, you know, I guess later on, as you sort of started your medical school years at Melbourne, um, did you find that you still felt that way? Oh, absolutely. I always felt that I wasn't kind of good enough, which was why being the class clown was probably uh, a good spot for me to be in because then I didn't have to worry about that I wasn't the smartest. I think it takes a long time to get that intimidation out of you because even first year medicine, you know, I'd be going to lectures and going, I've never heard of this before. And everyone else would be like going, oh, didn't you do this in year 12? And I'm like, no, we didn't do this in year 12. I think for years, in fact, probably I'm still a little intimidated. You know, I pass my exams and think, wow, how did I do that? I don't know if you ever quite get that out of your system i think now in my mid 40s i'm a bit more about yeah i'm probably you know up to it i'm okay mm. but there's still moments uh, you know even you asked me in the podcast i'm like why are they asking me what have i got to say <laughs> so i think yeah that does affect who you are a little bit and it does take a little bit to to shake off that that fact that you never had that exact amount of self-confidence that you always been intimidated and i think I'm sure that's the same for many people. Like, did you do anything apart from like trying to be the, you know, the, the class clown sort of laugh it off? Was there anything else that you sort of, that, that, that feeling maybe motivated you to do while you're a medical student or, or even later on? 
Yeah, I don't know if I did anything consciously. I think I was smart. The group I picked, because uh, back in those years, you did three years at Melbourne and three years in the clinical school. And I've always been to Catholic school. And my parents thought I'd go to St. Vincent's. And I decided <laughs> I was going to the Austin. Yes. Life. Good. I'm at the Austin. And I still work at St. V's. But I've come back to the mothership, as they like to call it. <laughs> my three years at the Austin were great, actually. And the smartest thing I ever did was I picked a group of smart smart girls and I was like that was a very smart decision like I was always the one running late and disorganized and they'd already had the notes and went to every lecture and I look back and think smart decision hanging out with those guys but I think I realized for me I could never back then I never thought I could match it academically uh, which is not so much the case now but I knew clinically I could because Talking to patients was something I enjoyed. It, it came quite naturally. I never worried about sitting down and having a yak to someone. So mm. um, clinical sides did feel, I felt like levelled things up a little bit. So being more, you know, I came from a middle-class background, but probably an ordinary background probably helped me relate to many of the patients. Yeah, um, that idea of you are the reflection of, the five people you spend most of your time with. I think that's <laughs> potentially an, an example there to, to think about as well. Uh, when you were at medical school, so the first three years were, I'm assuming, preclinical and then you had three clinical years because you said that you, your interest in surgery kind of developed the more that you did medicine. Um, can you tell us a little bit about maybe the clinical years and, and sort of what, what changed? Yeah, I think uh, one of my first clinical rotations was at the REPAT and uh, it was a very dynamic unit. Professor Donald McClellan was the head. Um, there used to be an old hospital administrator called Warby who'd wander around and knew everyone's name. I don't know if you've heard of the famous Dr. Warburton. And, you know, the, the registrar on the unit was Karen McCurditch, who actually went on to become a urologist. Uh, and uh, Pat Bowden was the intern, and they welcomed us to the unit. We really felt part of it. In fact, every Friday at the unit meeting, we had to put on a performance as medical students. I'm sure in this day and age, that'd be politically incorrect that you had to put a performance on or do some sort of education that was kind of humorous. <laughs> we loved that. We, we felt we were part of the unit and they looked after us well. And I realised I love surgery because you get an answer. Like someone comes in with a problem, you don't know what it is. So you open them up and you find out what it is. Like I hate not knowing the ending. You know, I'm one of those people that binge watches TV. Once I start the series, I'm kind of finished. <laughs> you know, um, what I love about surgery, you, you get an answer. I don't know what's wrong with you. We're going to look inside. Great. Um, people would get better. You would fix things. They would come in with a problem. You would do it. You'd fix it. And the more I did ward rounds and the more I spent time looking after the CCF, COPD, IHD, smoker combo, the more I realised oh, my God, you've got to wait years to see if your antihypertensives have worked. It's like palliation, you know, 20 years from death. So at least surgery is a lot more dynamic. You get an answer, you get to see the results of your labours. And it became very clear that my personality, I felt, was very well suited to it. I just love surgery. Like just, just from speaking with you for the past, you know, 20 minutes, you seem like someone who, um, you know, you're very comfortable sort of, chatting with people whereas i think some medical students might not feel as comfortable in those in those clinical scenarios um and also that you sort of felt you that the unit welcomed you and you felt you know part of that team whereas i think sometimes medical students don't feel like that all the time especially for surgical teams i think as a medical student you know 
it's hard for it's hard for surgeons you know we're busy we're trying to look after the registrars the residents we've recently had a medical student with us he, he was fabulous um in fact we've had lots of great medical students i like them i don't like the ones that i see like once you know in four weeks and i never see them again because there's no relationship because it's like patients the most enjoyable thing for many surgeons is probably operating i love operating but in fact it's the relationships that make you want to get out of bed in the morning that, you know, Mrs. Bloggs is here and, you know, Mrs. Bloggs has a white cat and uh, her husband, you know, is the local wood carving champion. It's all those things that make it interesting. And so for medical students, getting to know them is, is really good. And so come, for them to come to theatre, that's very important for us because we get a chance to say good day. And for them to introduce themselves, and I always say, where are you from? What do you want to do? And often they're too scared to say what they really want to do. Well, they think they've got to say surgery. They don't. Like, we, we want to hear the truth. Like, it's, you know, I want to engage with them. I love them coming to clinic and seeing patients and putting them under the pump and <laughs> uh, having them as part of the team. So that's what we want. It's the ones that sort of skulk around the edges that are difficult for me. Mm. Um, I want someone to say, G'day, I'm such and such and I'm going to be here. And often the ones that get involved, like some, particularly in theatre, you know, they might help put the legs up because, you know, in your role genially everyone's got their legs up in the air. Um, <laughs> or, you know, they help the registrar, they help write things, get the computer up. They become part of the team and, and, and helping us by doing those little jobs makes us want to help them more. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I think stand back less would be my advice. Some medical students are so worried about getting in trouble and, you know, getting, you know, offending anyone, they just stand back and then we kind of forget they're there. But if you can say, hey, I've got the computer open for you, um, do you mind if I scrub in, you know, engage us. We like that. Well, most of us like I think uh, on, on that point of engagement, um, you know, as, as a medical student, you get exposed to a lot of different specialties for for a lot of people, there are times when we're going through medical school that you sort of think about, you know, is like kind of what is the point of me doing all of this? Is this really what I want to do for the rest of my life? Did you ever have any moments like that? Um, and if so, can you tell us a bit about them? I don't, I'll be honest, in preclinical medicine, maybe, because it was pretty boring, um, biochemistry in the Krebs cycle. Yeah, uh, not really. I hated paediatrics. I thought I might as well become a vet. No, I actually quite enjoyed psychiatry. I thought that was very interesting talking to people. No, I don't think I ever had any doubt about uh, this is what I wanted to do. Probably when I was an intern and you had to rotate through the course rooms, I hated emergency. I really despise emergency because for me, you never found out what happened. You know, you kind of sort the problem and they'd go somewhere else. So I hated that you never sort of knew what happened. I didn't particularly like was medicine because it just seemed to be like one long ward round. You know, you'd start the ward round at 8 o'clock and at 4 o'clock you'd be doing the jobs from the ward round that had only just kind of finished. So I really didn't, didn't like that. So mm. if I had to do that forever, I probably wouldn't have, you know, done medicine. There are certain jobs in medicine where I couldn't have hacked, I'll be very honest. I think it's, but I think also as medical students, it's good for us to kind of figure out those things as a student or even as a junior doctor, um, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of choice. And I feel like on the other side is that there are some students who go through medical school and they find a lot of things that they're really interested in doing. So maybe we'll talk about, you know, the, the years after medical school. So maybe starting with your internship. So where did you, where, where were you an intern? Were you an intern at St. B's? I was an intern at St. B's. Um, 
I was the only intern at St. B's that didn't train at St. B's. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, look, I, I remember approaching the dean there, Wilma Beswick, who was a bit of a legend in our days, um, and saying to her, look, I wanted to come to St. B's, and I thought I wanted to be a breast surgeon, just so you know. My God, never did I realise cutting through fat would be so boring. I apologise to any of my breast surgical colleagues, but oh, I really did not like it. Um, so... I went there because um, I'd heard some really good things about the surgeons there. There was a guy called Michael Henderson who was, uh, had a really good name and I thought, well, I want to be a breast surgeon, so I want to go to St. B's. And, so, and I liked the fact that St. B's was a bit smaller. My feeling was at the Austin. The problem for me, I was there in the generation where there were two hospitals. There was Austin and there was Repat. And clearly if Repat had still been Repat, I would have been at Repat. But the Austin really took over the Repat. Now, the Repat, you've got to remember... It was full of old diggers. You know, my grandfather was an old digger. It had the huge psych wards of all the PTSD patients who'd wander around smoking stuff. I loved all that. You know, you'd know the patient, you'd meet him in the gift shop. I didn't actually love the Austin. I found that a lot more mm. clinical and those colour schemes. Hopefully they've changed them. But <laughs> they used to be terrible. Um, purple wards and orange wards. and So the Austin kind of took over the repat. And so I felt that if the repat didn't exist anymore, then I needed to move somewhere a bit smaller. And St. V's was the smaller of the larger hospitals. Mm. I didn't like being just a number almost. So I've always chosen places where people get to know me and I feel more comfortable. Yeah, I think that's particularly pertinent for some of people, some people who are listening like myself. Uh, the MD4s who are thinking about their intern preferences and where they want to go. Um, in terms of, like, I guess just as just drawing back for a second, um, in terms of talking about your career, when you when you decide on like where you want to take up an opportunity or where you want to work, um, so you mentioned one of the factors was you know being somewhere where people where you feel like people want to get to know you. Are there any other things that you kind of think about whenever you're evaluating career opportunities? Oh, look, I should think about lots of things, but often if it just sounds good, I go, yeah, that sounds good. Um, I do go on my gut a little bit. I'm, I remember being uh, completely distressed by the decisions about where do you go to do your clinical years and, and where do you go to do your internship? And we place so much emphasis on that. And I'm sure you guys still do now because I've got, you know, really good students in Bendigo. Do we stay in Bendigo? Do we go to the city? And I think those days are over a little bit. I, I don't think it matters as much where you go. And maybe it didn't matter back then. It just felt like it mattered. Mm-hmm. I think you need to go somewhere where you feel comfortable. And if you don't feel comfortable there, you can't be your best self. And for whatever reasons you feel comfortable, a particular hospital, whether you've been there before or you like um, the way it's structured, you like the location, I, I would go there because intern year or, you know, being a resident stressful enough without being in a place that you don't feel comfortable. I think um, there is some, there used to be a distinct advantage of going to a big tertiary hospital and that was the only way you could kind of get onto a training program because of research. I think most surgical training programs have moved away from that. And the reason being is, you know, in urology, there's been some outstanding urologists who've come out of the Austin, but it, it kind of got known as the Austin factory because everyone would come and do, you know, a couple of years of research. You know, I'm not on the board or anything like that and I have nothing to do with selection, but I gather there's been a move towards more reference-based systems rather mm. than just rewarding people who do research. 
And because of that, I think if you can go somewhere and feel welcomed in a unit and you think you can do your best self, as long as you can still do some research, it doesn't actually matter where you go. Mm. And a lot of the research, yeah, there's established research links in the city, but if you, you know, you can do research in the country um, or you can do other things in the country as well. So I don't think it matters as much as long as you're happy. Mm. If you go somewhere that you don't think you're going to be happy, then that's a, a horrible mistake. So you need to go somewhere that you feel comfortable. And that would be my strongest advice. Yeah, thank you for that, Janelle. I think um, one thing that um, I was hoping to chat with you a little bit today about as well was um, because your, your, your careers are quite interesting because you trained and you worked in the city for a bit, but now you're working in, um, and sort of teaching um, in 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 uh, in the country. So, just in terms of your your earlier career, so you were an intern at St V's, um, and then you got into I'm assuming the the general surgery training program, and you finished your training there um, in in 2003. Um, general surgery, I don't believe, is something that you do as much now because you're a urologist. I'm wondering what initially drew you to general surgery. Oh, uh, general surgery was. Um, well, again, I, I probably always thought I wanted to be a general surgeon. I was quite interested in urology, but the registrar I had at the time, I hope he's not listening, he was quite depressed. It kind of didn't inspire me to do urology. I was like, oh, my God, I don't want to end up like him. And no one was really that inspiring. Where the general surgeons I worked for, I, mm. I did the colorectal job at Box Hill, and I just had the most amazing group of bosses um, Jack Mackey, who's dead now, I used to spend more time, I think, in the boot of his car searching for x-rays and, you know, everyone says, yeah, I being his secretary, but I was bloody good at being his secretary. It was fabulous. Um, you know, there were Rod Wood, Frank Chen, Jamie Keck. They welcomed me so much. My fellow, um, Richard, was excellent. I thought, you know what, I want to be a colorectal surgeon. And the beautiful thing about colorectal is that... Um, they really know how to operate. They really know how to get into that complex plane in the pelvis. And, you know, I admired their surgical skill and the fact that nothing phased them and I wanted to be like them. And so that's, I went to Geelong. I worked for an amazing bloke called Marcus Thorne, who's another excellent colorectal surgeon. And again, I loved working for him. And so that's where um, colorectal came because they were the ones that really supported me and, um, you know, I wanted to be like them. And I think, mm. you know, I don't have never been an official mentor, nor do I, you know, I never put my name down for those things. I think mentorship is more about seeing people you like and thinking, I want to be like them. I think mentorship is actually better when it's informal. Does, does that make sense? I tried that once. She must have coffee. And it's like this woman and I had nothing in common. She did advise me to read House of God by Samuel Shem, which was a very good recommendation because it's a very <laughs> funny book. But other than that, it was just silly. You know what I mean? So, mm. again, a lot of students think they need to have a mentor. My advice is kind of just find someone you like working with and, and they'll be your mentor. Mm. Yeah, I think that, that advice of, um, I guess, getting to know the people that you work with and, and actually, you know, I, I, like as you said, that informal mentorship relationship is um, something that's actually a, a lot of the guests have also talked about. Um, I don't think that they had any sort of particularly like prescribed or structured mentoring programs. Um, and I think it's interesting too, because with a lot of the guests, a pattern that we're starting to see is that more and more people, uh, you know, when I say people, obviously I mean consultants um, have sort of chosen initially at least what they've done because of the people that they're 
around. Um, so I guess in terms of the, the registrar life um, and the people that you met during that, was there any one person or maybe a couple of people that really stood out to you who, who really had a, a big impact or changed the ways that you saw things? Yeah, there was probably the ones I didn't like were people who I thought I never, ever want to do that specialty because you're a misogynist pig. There were a couple of episodes of sexism. By and large, my mentors were very supportive of me. I think it was more about where I could see myself. Like, I hated a patabellary because they all bloody died. Um, you know, I worked... In fact, when I was doing my research, I assisted Simon Banting, who's, who's a fabulous surgeon, but... No offence, they all die in a patabellary. They've all got, you know, pancreatic cancer or, mm. you know, it's a terrible specialty. I think you probably worked out that I started general surgery. In fact, I, back in those days, after three years, you sat your fellowship exam. It's interesting, out of our group of four, only one of us is still a general surgeon. I went on to do plastic. That's Richard Rarden, who's in Geelong, and Steve Barnett's gone on to do thoracics. But I, I remember... Walking, it's as clear as day. I was walking home from um, Geelong Hospital one night at three in the morning and I'd just done a fabulous appendix uh, and back in the day, lap appendix, we were doing lap gallbladders, but lap appendix was kind of like, oh, this will never take off. Mm. Um, and there's a, there's a retractor called an army pattern and I'd managed to take this appendix out in this a young man with an incision the size of an army pattern and then, you know, I grabbed the appendix of the Babcock. It was almost gangrenous I did the most probably one of the best operations of my life and I walked home and because uh, you had to walk a little bit to where you, you stayed opposite the hospital and uh, I thought I've saved this guy's life and I'm not even remotely excited by it I'm just tired and all I want to do is go back to bed and for me it was that realization and also talking to another colorectal surgeon about you know, the patients with fistulas that often spend, you know, six months in hospital on TPN. They're like a noose around your neck. And I just thought, I'm not experiencing the joy out of this. And I was about 29 at the time. And I thought, because I actually went through training quite quickly, if I didn't experience that joy at 29, what was I going to be like when I was 49? And so on a whim, I, I always in the back of my mind liked urology. It was in the pelvis. I loved it as a student at the Austin, actually. I really loved it as a student, but I didn't love it as much as a resident more because of my boss. I decided to apply, uh, thinking I'd have a better lifestyle. That was before I moved to the country. But um, at least I don't have to get up too much in the middle of the night. And that's one of the best decisions I've ever made. So my advice is if things don't feel right, um, then you should change. You shouldn't be afraid to change. Everyone's like, you're crazy. You've done your general surgery fellowship. I'm like, I just don't think I can do this forever. And as much as I loved colorectal surgery, I'm glad I made that decision. I couldn't do that forever. And I think one thing for students to know that you can sometimes pick the wrong specialty. I mean, how do you know? And if it's not right for you, it is okay to change. Um, I mean, I've only changed from general surgery to urology, but there's many people who have changed from surgery to radiology and various things. It's better to change. You don't waste those years. You're still becoming a better doctor. So if you make the wrong decision or the decision that turns out not being right for you, and I think that's, that's a better description because you don't always know what it is that you want as you mature, mm. then you should feel free to change because there is plenty of scope to do that. 
And I think sometimes we put so much pressure on ourselves to get through the other end. You've got to realise that when you get through, you've got another 20 years of doing it. You've got to really like it. But I think sometimes when, you know, when you look at the way that the training programs and all those things are set up now, um, at least for a lot of us, you know, the juniors that are coming through, there's this feeling that you get funneled down into this particular specialty and um, particularly now with some of the college exams where, you know, it's sort of three tries and then you're out kind of thing. It's an up and out, you know, you go up or you go out. It's that sort of model. Um, so I think hearing that story is, is quite interesting because you did actually, and you are now still working as a urologist. So in terms of the early 2000s, so you became a consultant in 2003 and then you did two years of research at St. V's when you were looking at metastatic bladder cancer. Was that, was that while you were working as well? or No, I, I was doing full-time research. <clears throat> I'm one of those evil people that never actually published their doctorate, um, which is actually one of my greatest regrets. So anyone who's doing research, finish it. In fact, I think I'm about to enrol in a PhD because I've got um, a feeling of something that's unfinished. And unfortunately, I have no longer any interest in killing any more mice uh, for science. But the two years of research were good. I mean, if you had have told me I was going to do research, you know, I would have laughed at you because <laughs> like anatomy, I hated research. As I've got older, I actually really love research. I think it's really interesting. Um, the two years for me, they were a little tricky because I did have to do a lot of assisting uh, because I didn't come from money, so I needed to earn money. But Early on in that research year, my father got diagnosed with metastatic melanoma about three months in, and he was dead by the December. So I was very close to my dad. So the one advantage of doing research is it meant that I could kind of look after him and mm. be with him as he was dying. And that's why the research then became two years, which never got finished, not surprisingly. But that time I had with my father, I would never have got if I had been doing a clinical job. So... Um, you know, I couldn't have, you know, I was only going to take one year off because that's what it was. It was a year off. Mm. Um, but it ended up being two. But I look back and think, well, I'm really glad I did that. So, but I didn't. Again, life throws you curveballs. You know, I thought I was going to come out with a doctorate. Instead, I came out with not much, uh, an enjoyment of research and time spent with my family. And so I think you just got to take the curveballs that life throws you and make the best out of it. And maybe just on that topic of, uh, you know, balance between work and, and family. So uh, that was a, a difficult situation for, for you to be in because, um, you know, obviously your father wasn't, wasn't very well at the time. I'm wondering, um, you know, throughout your training, did you think about like starting your own family? Like, are you, uh, do you have a family at the moment? I've got a very naughty child who you can probably hear barking in the background called Dusty. The Bichon Fries, named after the football player. Yes, that is correct. Look, if no one was going to ever listen to this podcast, I could probably wax lyrical about work-life balance. But given that there may be some human being that listens to what I've got to say who knows me, I should be very honest and say my work-life balance is appallingly bad uh, and I wish I could do better and I am not a role model in this area. <laughs> so I'm just being completely honest. Um, no, I don't have a partner I don't have a family and nor do I have any regrets about that. I actually never really wanted children, even from a young age. You know, people would talk about having children and I'd talk about having a nice car, which I do have. I knew you'd like that, Jason, because I can see the cars in your bookcase behind you. <laughs> it's my, it's my, uh, my radio-controlled cars. It was a hobby that I picked up when I was in year eight. 
I like it. Um, you know, I, I'm not, you know, I often feel like a fraud when you're going to interview a female surgeon because I don't have kids and nor have I had any desire to have kids. It's just, you know, not all women want a family. So it, it's not really been a difficult decision for me. I'd be a crappy mother. Or maybe, maybe that's not true. Maybe I would be a good mother, but to do that, I'd then become a crappy surgeon. I think I'd be very bad at trying to balance because I'm, I'm really bad at balance. So, but I have no regrets, no regrets about that at all. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I sort of, I didn't mean to ask that as kind of like a leading question or anything. It was just more so uh, because, you know, there's a lot of talk that we hear now about work-life balance and, and I think different, different surgeons and different guests have different things to say about that. You can do whatever you want. Like one of my greatest friends is Caroline Dowling, who's head of urology at Box Hill and have one, at least one child during her training. She's got four children. Um, she's head of unit. She, you know, runs, has a fabulous career. But it's different to mine. And, you know, the thought of looking after four children, I know she's got a nanny, but, you know, I just go, oh, my God, how do you juggle all that? But she, mm. she probably looks at some of the things I do and goes, why would you do that? I don't think there's a right or wrong answer. And I think... If you want something badly enough, you can get it. Like if someone says, no, you can't do that, they are wrong. You can do whatever you want. And it becomes a lot easier when you're a consultant because you can say, this is what I'm doing. I'm not working Friday or I'm having a week off. And I know as a registrar, it's harder to make those decisions, but urology has just had its first part-time training, Marnie Basto who um, came and relieved for us. She was fabulous in Bendigo. And I look at her and think, now you're going to be an outstanding urologist and you've trailblazed a whole new path of, and a way of training and, and I can't see there's going to be any issues with that. And so don't let anyone tell you that you can't do something because you mm. can't. You might have to work hard for it, but you can. So in terms of working hard, I think you got back onto the training program for urology in 2006 and then you became a consultant urologist in, in early 2009 as well. You also did a fellowship in Auckland and you also went overseas to the US for a little bit. I think it's just, again, like you, I think you've partly answered this question. You know, I think it's interesting that you're someone who's dual trained. Um, you know, is this something that you would recommend for people who have broad interests? Because for some of us, you know, we, we like, we like surgery or we like something else the sunk cost or the sort of actual work you have to do to get onto the program is, is getting higher and higher these days. You know, just what are your, what are your thoughts on that? It's a difficult question, uh, Jason, because the problem is the world that I trained in was one that I knew every minute detail of how to get onto a training program. And I'm sure nearly everyone else is the same, that you know every minute detail of how to get on the training programs now. And so that has changed. There's, there's no doubt that... You know, I often look at you guys and I read your CVs and I think, fuck, I would have never got onto surgical training if I was competing against you. <laughs> um, and that's not you. That's just, you know, medical students in general. You've done so much more. And I think that's because there's a lot more students. Um, after I went through, they did increase the student numbers. You know, it used to be the default that if you couldn't get onto a training program, you'd all become general practitioners. That was mm -hmm. the default. Now that's, you know, you can't always necessarily get onto that. I'm just like, oh, my God. Not that being a GP is an easy job, don't get me wrong. I have the utmost respect for GPs, but I'm just showing in terms of how the training program has changed. Mm. I think my feeling is if you're good at your job and um, 
not everyone's going to like you. I mean, I'm sure there's urologists out there that would like to kill me when I was their registrar. In fact, I know there are, and there's others that like me. You know, it, if enough people will support you and you're good at your job, then you can manoeuvre. There is no doubt the financial cost is a lot greater now than what it was for us, although it was, wasn't cheap then either. As I said to you, you just kind of go with your gut and sometimes things just fall into place. But if you do find yourself in a training program that you're not happy, the cost of doing something that you're unhappy about for the rest of your life, because there is no such thing as a nine to five medical career. And I was recently talking to her about a resident about this. She goes, it's going to be okay. I don't like medicine, but I'm going to do it nine to five. Well, it's, it's never nine to five because the patient comes in at 4.55 with something life-threatening or there's an urgent result on your day off. And even though you have structures in place to cover that, it's just an unpredictable job. And if you're doing a job that you don't particularly love when there's that sort of unpredictability, your life will be hell. So you are better off to make a decision early on and go, you know what? this is not for me and do something else. And I know there's a financial cost and there's a time cost, but in terms of making you a better human being and a better doctor, I think it's a really good thing knowing yourself and knowing what you want and what you enjoy, because it means that you enjoy your job more. And so any bit of, you know, general surgery fellowships, sure, I might do the odd hernia occasionally, although I'm even giving up that. Um, certainly at the start, I did a lot more. Um, it's not about that. It's about being comfortable with, with where you are and, and what you're doing. So I think the cost of not doing something is greater than the cost of doing something. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and as you said, the your motivation, like that story you told about coming back home from Geelong, do you feel like that was the turning point for you? Yeah, and then after that, uh, as I said, I looked after a few papers, patients with fistulas in another hospital. I just thought, I can't do this. And uh, little incidents that made me realise that if I couldn't hack it then, I couldn't hack it later. So you, you went overseas and then you came back and you moved to Bendigo in 2010, um, where you're still working at the moment. Why the move? <laughs> <laughs> well, um, it was a hard move. I... I I'm very grateful to my colleagues at St. B's who'd offered me a job and private practice. In fact, I still go to St. B's one day a month. They've been very supportive of me. I was going fortnightly. Um, it was very hard to move to the country because I always felt that academically I was letting myself down a little bit. I'm not going to lie. You know, the best surgeons were in the city and I was going to the country. But there were two things that happened. One was um, your colleague, Jason, who's not appearing on the podcast, but um, got on to me through a combined mentor of ours called Don Moss. And Don rang me up. He, he used to be my boss in Ballarat and said, you know what, you should go to Bendigo because there's only one urologist or there were two urologists there and one was leaving the public. Um, you should go there because you can make a real difference and you could, you know, start a department. And I thought, hmm, that sounds interesting. And then I went and met the the urologist that was doing the public his name is Michael McClatchy he's still one of my greatest friends and I uh, came up for a weekend and um, his beautiful wife Evelyn uh, hosted me I stayed in their house overnight she was the most fabulous cook uh, unfortunately Evelyn's recently died but I just remember the meal she cooked the hospitality they were both such generous and kind people and Michael if anyone listening to this who knows Michael he's the most unsurgical surgeon known to man like he <laughs> He loves literature and poetry and he's the most gentle soul. Um, you know, I'm much more grumpy like a surgeon. Um, 
and he he was just so lovely to me and I thought this is someone who I can imagine working with and that we were such different people we kind of could complement each other and again Bendigo was never on my roadmap I always actually thought I'd go to Ballarat because that's where close to where my mother lived um but it's mm. been the best move of my life and I love Bendigo and I'll never leave here the weather is so much better than Ararat or Ballarat and uh close to Melbourne you'll be carrying me out of here in a box so, <laughs> compared to my city colleagues who spend hours in the car traveling from hospital to hospital I strongly recommend that people can think about a regional center because I don't think there's anything um, that, well, there is one thing. I, I do travel to Melbourne to use the Da Vinci robot because we don't have a robot in Indigo despite me trying to get one. But there is nothing else that I can't do. I run research projects. I have students. I have registrars. I have a fellow. There is, you know, it's, it's a great place to sort of work. And I think, it's very hard as medical students when we've always been trained in the city. That's where the brightest and the best are to make that step. Um, but you can be a very rewarding career. So think about the regions would be my advice. I guess on that point, um, I personally feel like the sentiment for a lot of the, the medical students who are metro trained, including myself, um, is that we sometimes have a fear of going rural because we feel like there's not as much opportunity out there. And that's some of the things that you've talked about a little bit. Um, does it being able to start, you know, be, sort of lead your own department and do research and, and stay on top and active um, with all of those things. I guess my, my question to you is, do you think, you know, looking at where you are now and maybe comparing that with how things would have been if you'd stayed Metro, like what do you think the kind of differences are? Um, mm. if, if there are, if there are any I think there's huge differences. I think um, one of the problems with living in metro is looking at what everyone else is driving and, you know, how well they're doing and having a bit of that state of anxiety. <laughs> I think in metro, where there's less of that in the country. You're a big fish in a small pond in the country as opposed to just being another PhD fish swimming around trying to find a little bit of plankton. <laughs> I think the opportunities for me are, you know, I'm head of unit at a young age, that would never have been available to me um, in the city because, of course, you're joining a queue, um, mm. many senior people. Um, there's been great opportunity to innovate. You know, one of my favourite sayings is never ask for permission but ask for forgiveness. So I've trained two nurse practitioners, one of whom we're teaching transperineal biopsy to, another one who's doing all my public Botox patients and works with me in the rooms. Um, you know, we've done lots of innovative things that I would never have been able to do in the city. Um, you know, so much of what research gets done is based on what the head of unit is um, interested in. And um, basically, I can, you know, once I got the first time I was invited to a trial, and I'm very grateful to Damien Bolton from the Austin who put my name up, now I've done four trials. You know what I mean? And I get to choose the trials. So... I think being if if you're a go-getter, um, then I think being in a regional centre is great. I mean, if you want a lifestyle, being in a regional centre is great. Um, but you don't have to miss out on that that academic side at all. I think you can make whatever opportunity you want. And I think this is one thing that's very poorly understood um, by students about what's available. And, and part of that is the rural clinical schools have notoriously had people who were very good at teaching but weren't necessarily interested in research. And clearly 
cutting edge research is kind of where it's at. But in my department, you know, we're currently running a stone trial, a BPH trial, uh, a trophic vaginitis trial. Uh, the other centres are, you know, Royal Melbourne, the Austin, Royal Prince Alfred in Sydney, you know, and Little Old Bendigo. So you can do whatever you like if you are committed enough to focusing on it. But if you don't like the idea of trying something new or introducing a new procedure, like when I came to Bendigo, I was the first person to do lap nephrectomies. I'm not going to lie, doing a new procedure in a town with no one who can back you up is a little scary. Mm. But it's pretty exciting to think, well, I did the first lap nephrectomy. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so I think there's a lot available in the regions and you can really make a career for yourself, probably much more than the city. Yeah, I think what you said about the, the sort of miscommunication or maybe the lack of knowledge about working rurally is something that, you know, for Metro-only students, we don't really get exposure to to rural teaching. So maybe in terms of the the slightly more technical side of of the job in terms of you know the different services and all those things um that that you have access to at the hospital um i mean also at at bendigo health like it's one of the probably larger rural services i'd say what do you feel like in terms of the technical side like some of the challenges or some of the benefits are look i think one of the huge advantages of going to a really rural service is um, you really get to know the patients well. Like they know, they don't just know me. I take my two nurse practitioners, two admin staff. All the patients know them all by name. Um, I think you can make a huge difference. Like sometimes in medicine, you can feel a bit on the treadmill. Do you know what I mean? The waiting list just keeps growing, and you do five cases, and there's another five where they came from. You know, if I don't go to Swan Hill, that's 38 operations that don't get done. And these people then have to travel two hours to Bendigo. And some of them, it's a three or four hour drive, depending on where they come from. So there's not many places where you can really go and think, yeah, I made a, I made a difference there. So it does mean three nights away from home. That's all right. The dog goes and has a nice play with my nurse's dog. Um, <laughs> but other than that, look, at it's hard work. Um, Sometimes I do get frustrated with some of the ward management that may not always be, you know, as up-to-date as you'd like, although everyone's trying their best, don't get me wrong, but it is hard when you only got urology three days a month compared to a specialist urology ward. Mm -hmm. But you do make a difference. And it's pretty good to go somewhere where you know you make a difference or someone gets referred, oh, you looked after my cousin, you looked after my uncle, you looked after my mum. Like, it's really nice, Jason, That that sort of... I think it's a bit like what general practice, you know, is. You've, you've got that, that family dynamic. So it's nice having a rural uh, spot if you can get it. I think we'll, uh, just in terms of looking at the time as well, we might move on to a couple of the sort of broader questions and then we'll, we'll wrap up the interview. Hey, you told um, me we're going to talk about non-medical things. We've talked about medicine the whole <laughs> interview, buddy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, maybe maybe some of these questions will um, tickle the philosophical muscle a little bit more. What's one lesson looking back at, because we've really sort of in, in the last sort of hour or so, we've really sort of taken a, a, a really quick overview of, of your career and all the things that you've done. Maybe what's one lesson that you think um, or that you look back on and you wish that you'd learned a little bit earlier? I think one advantage of having sit two, sat two fellowship exams, and there's not many people who've done that and passed two, is I wish 
I'd learnt how to study. Like by the time I got to the second one, I was getting pretty good at studying. And I think sometimes we study because that's the way we've always studied. And I don't think I was particularly efficient. So I wish I had have taken more time to, to learn how to, to study efficiently. Does that make sense? Because certainly as I've got older, I'm much better at learning new things and retaining knowledge and, you know, like listening to a podcast or just reading something instead of trying to highlight every second line or take copious pages of notes. You can be more efficient at that. Um, and if you're more efficient at that, you can have better work-life balance. So mm. I probably would say philosophically, spend some time learning how to study effectively. And do you mind me asking how you actually went about doing that? Uh, well, you know, I, I love a self-help book. There's, there's books about learning and it was just experience looking back. Like I should have read the contents pages of some of those four-volume textbooks. It's called Campbell's Urology because, in fact, you know, I would try and read everything and learn everything. I couldn't. But if I had to just learn the contents pages and the subheadings, I would have worked out what the structure was. But do you know what I mean? I couldn't see the wood for the trees. So I think trying to work out whether you're a, you know, auditory learner or a visual learner or a tactile learner, I'm a tactile learner, it's going to say olfactory, but, you know, that's ridiculous. But, you know, trying to work out how you learn and ways to make that more efficient um, is, is a good thing to spend time on. And I suspect, I might be wrong, but none of us spend much time on that. Yeah, it's not, it's not necessarily something that, like, well, there are, like, lectures and stuff that we get in it now, but it's just something that we kind of brush off. Yeah, I think you should spend time on that. It's a very wise investment as you go through life. Yeah, I think it's, that definitely would have a, had a pretty good return, especially later on as we start thinking about specialist exams. Um, in terms of your, you know, if you were thinking about yourself and, you know, your personal attributes and sort of, you know, sort of your own strengths and your own weaknesses, what do you think um, are maybe the, the sort of top two or three values or, or attributes that have helped you to get to where you are? I'm a bit of a stubborn bugger, so I'm pretty determined. don't like being told no. So I think my determination or stubbornness has probably helped. I think uh, the ability to work hard, um, that, that sounds silly, but there are times in medicine where you think you can't give any more and, you know, it's 11 o'clock at night and there's one more patient. That ability to just... You know, keep going. I'm not superhuman. I like to sleep in. I'd stay in bed till 2 p.m. every day if I could. Um, I'm a night owl, not a lark, unfortunately. Um, yeah, I think that ability to just to keep working and keep trying is actually pretty important because there, there will come a time in your training where you just think, oh, I just don't want to do this anymore. But if you can kind of just think, well, that patient could be my mother or my father or my best friend, then that kind of pushes you to keep going. And I think um, maybe just one more sort of bigger question. So, I mean, you're the head of the unit now. You've got all this research going on. You're working across multiple different centres. Just in terms of your maybe process for managing your time and managing your priorities, do you have something that you do to kind of keep yourself organised? Oh, God, again, I hope no one's listened to this. I used to think I was organised. In fact, I used to say to people, I really am organised. It's just that I'm very busy. But as I've gone through life, I've realised I'm probably terribly disorganised. But the one thing that I have been clever about doing, and I should do it more, is that I am surrounded by good people. So I have, um, in particular, my practice manager, Janet, who you've been dealing with, um, 
you know, has such a high EQ and she's incredibly organised. Like I was watching her do something the other day and I went, I can't even believe I used to think I was organised compared to you. Yana, my nurse practitioner who does a lot of my stuff in the office is very organised. And so my advice is you can't do everything. You need to try and not even delegate, let go, uh, which I'm getting better at doing and trusting other people and finding people who compliment you. Like, you know, there's a thing in business speak about, you know, what the difference between a leader and a manager. I'm all about crazy ideas, some of which have worked quite well for me and thinking about the next research project. And I've got no idea where I'm going to fit it or how it's going to work, but I think it sounds good. Um, and Janet and Yana are kind of my managers. Well, if you really want to do this, we'll make this work, but this is what needs to be done. So surround yourself with people who compliment you and don't think that just because you're a good doctor that you're good at other things. So that's why I've learned to be successful. I just say, you know, call Yana, call Janet, you know, email them um, because I'm useless. You know, I'm an ideas person. I am, you know, if you can see a picture of my desk, thank God this is an audio podcast. This has recently been tidied up. I'm very disorganised, but it kind of works. There's a great book by Tim Hartford called Messy. If there's any listener out there who's messy, you need to read that book for inspiration because Einstein was messy and I, that's about all I remember from the book, but I liked it. Uh, it's about <laughs> survivors of a messy, slightly disorganised person. So there you go. I think the last question that we always like to ask is, um, Janelle, what will we find you doing this weekend? Uh, well, the great love of my life is golf. Uh, I'm not very good at it, but I love golf. Uh, because when I'm frustrated, as one of my golf friends says, just put those double Ds into it, and I certainly do. <laughs> uh, and I've travelled the world playing golf, um, you know, just on tours and stuff and seen so many amazing places. So, you will find me golfing and um, probably with my nose in a book. Um, I do love reading as well. And possibly going out for dinner with a nice Heathcote Shiraz. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, I think that sounds like a pretty ideal weekend for anyone. So, look, Janelle, um, I guess I'd like to just firstly say thank you so much for your time today and, and sharing some of those stories with us. Uh, I think especially for medical students that I mentioned a couple of times in medical students like me, we've been Metro all of our lives. It's um, really different and we don't always get the opportunity to hear from someone who's working actively rurally. Um, and so thank you for sharing some of those insights in terms of the things that you've noticed and also some of the, some of the things that maybe we should consider as well um, when thinking about our careers. And I hope I haven't bored you too much. No, I don't think so at all. I think, um, you know, hearing, I think the fact that you're double trained, um, that you're working rurally, it's just very different to what we have to a lot of our guests and I'm sure that it will be very interesting to listen to. Thanks so much for tuning into today's episode of the Time Out podcast. If you'd like to hear more from us in the future, please consider subscribing to the show on the Apple and Spotify podcast platforms. If you'd like to contact us or have any thoughts that you'd like to share, please do so via our Facebook page, the Surgical Student Society of Melbourne. The Surgical Student Society of Melbourne would like to thank our two major sponsors for 2020, the Medical Indemnity Protection Society and the Department of Surgery at the University of Melbourne for their ongoing support please find in the show description a link for the Department of Surgery's e-learning module entitled Pathways to Career Progression, 
as well as two links from MIPS for students. The Surgical Student Society of Melbourne would also like to thank Michelle Andrews, who is the co-host of the Shameless podcast, for her support in helping us to put this program together. You can find the Shameless podcast on Apple and Spotify podcasts as well. This episode was edited by Karen Gunatilaka and Alex Grogan. Special thanks to Jenny Pham and Rashan Kari for their help in organising today's guests. My name's Jason and I hope that you'll tune in again soon.